Church. Welcome to week three of the Songs of Christmas. And Christmas Sweater Sunday, it's a thing here, which is why everyone looks so good today. A huge thank you to everyone who took stars and bought gifts for kids in our community. We had a great time last Sunday wrapping over 300 gifts and getting them ready to deliver to their schools. This is going to bring so much joy to the families in our community. Next Sunday, December 17th, is our PC Kids Christmas program. I've read the script and can indeed verify it's very, very prodigal. We can't wait. Following the service next week, we'll be having our prodigal Christmas party complete with a train ride, hot cocoa, a bouncy house. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you there. Just a reminder, we'll be right here live at 10 a.m. on both Christmas and New Year's Eve, and we'll also have our usual service available online. If you'd like to give to Prodigal Church, head to our app or website, or use the kiosks or boxes in the lobby. To stay up to date with all that's happening this Christmas, make sure you have the Prodigal Church app downloaded on your phone. Thanks so much for joining us today on Christmas Sweater Sunday and for week three of the Songs of Christmas. Have a great Sunday. It was winter 1843. A small village in southern France named Rochemia. The organ in the village church had just been renovated. The village priest wanted to have a special celebration leading up to Christmas, so he asked a local wine merchant named Placide Capia to write a special Christmas poem. And while in his horse and carriage, riding from Paris to Rochemia, he penned the words to the poem, Minuit Shreton. Placide Capot asked his friend Adolf Adam to put the poem to music. The song took off that very first winter. And within a couple of years, it was a mainstay in churches all throughout France. It was then that the Catholic Church discovered that the author of the song, Placide Capia, was not a churchgoer. And not only not a churchgoer, he wasn't a Christian at all. He lived quite the life outside the bounds of Christian morality. And then the guy who put the song to music, well, it was Adolf Adam, who was Jewish. So the diocese of the church sent word to all their parish churches to say, stop singing that song. They tried, but to no avail. The people just kept singing it. And then in 1855, John Dwight adapted the song to English. In 1855, that is six years before the Civil War here in the United States. The third verse of Dwight's version, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. This version became popular in the U.S., especially in the North, who opposed slavery, the abolitionists. Fifty years later, it's Christmas Eve, 1906. In a small town outside of Boston, Massachusetts, a Canadian-American engineer, Reginald Fessenden, was sitting at one of his most prized inventions, an electrical device that can transmit sound through radio waves. Now, up until this point in history, the primary use of radio wave communication was for Morse code, for emergencies, but on this frozen night in December, Reginald decided, let's do something that has never been done before. 
a radio broadcast of live music. Nearby is a Bible opened up to the Gospel of Luke. Reginald looks at it and sees the words, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Then he picks up his violin, leans towards the transmitter and begins to play the song. The melody of O Holy Night stirs the airwaves, resounding in his ears and in the ears of those many, many miles away. It was heard as far as the West Indies. The first live music ever played on the radio was O Holy Night, over a hundred years ago. It is my favorite Christmas carol. This song has challenged the vocal ranges of churchgoers around the world for almost 200 years. Those O Night Divines are notes reserved only for the angels, and yet we all try. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. O night divine. O night when Christ was born. The song brings us back to the first Christmas that holy night when our dear Savior was born. Now, 40 years before this song was launched, back in 1809, the world was expanding in exploration. And the whole world was also following the march of Napoleon and his conquests. In a world where news traveled slowly, all the nations were waiting with feverish impatience for the latest war news. And all the while, in humble homes across the globe, babies were being born. During that year, William Gladstone was born in Liverpool, England. When he grew up, he served as prime minister four separate times. That's more than any person in English history. Alfred Tennyson was born in Somersby, one of the greatest poets the world has known. Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Massachusetts. He was an American physician, poet, professor, and author. Felix Mendelssohn was born in Hamburg, Germany. He grew up to be one of the greatest composers the world has known. And in rural Kentucky, Abraham Lincoln was born. 1809, a year of exploration, a year of conquests and empires and wars, and we must ask the question, what was more consequential, the battles or the babies? What had a greater impact on the world and throughout human history, the new lands or the new borns? So it is with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. What does pining mean? It means to yearn deeply, to suffer with longing, to languish, to suffer a physical or mental decline, especially because of a broken heart. The world is still pining. Till he appears and the soul felt its worth. It is in Jesus that in the deepest parts of who we are, we feel the worth and value 
that we've always carried. And then my favorite line of the song, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Hope, hope. Hope is something that we all need, don't you think? When Dex and I are watching football game together, there comes a time in the game where I say something like, it's over. He will then immediately look at the clock on the game and see that there's still time left. And then he says, if we onside kick it and score a touchdown in 30 seconds with no timeouts and then convert the two-point conversion, we can get to overtime and then who knows? See, for him, there is always hope. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. We need more of that childlike hope in our own lives. Your situation is going to work out. There's hope. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. In 2004, I was a youth pastor and the church that I was working at wanted to provide an adult service that was geared more towards the younger crowd, okay? Younger families, college age. And the thought was that some of the younger pastors would be the primary speakers at this adult service. And so a few of us kind of rotated who was speaking. And I remember being in one of the planning meetings and one of the pastors said that during the sermon this week and he was going to fall on his knees in a dramatic way, and then declare that when you bow down on your knees, it is the only place where your heart is above your head. Now, I was young, and I had two immediate thoughts, okay? Number one, well, that's not true, okay? Because if I'm doing a handstand or a headstand, my heart is also above my head. And two, uh, this illustration is not going to land. And so, on that Sunday, in trying to illustrate humility, on the stage, this pastor fell to his knees in dramatic fashion, bowed down, and with his face to the ground, he declared, this is the only place where your heart is above your head. It did not land. And more awkward than him falling to his knees was when he struggled to get back to his feet and continue the sermon. But just because it was awkward and just because it didn't land and just because it wasn't physically true, it doesn't mean it wasn't metaphorically true. Because when we bow down in humility, when we fall to our knees, we are placing what's true in here over what's true in here. Verse three, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever, his power and glory evermore proclaim. I love that line. His law is love and his gospel is peace. That is good news. Gospel, the word there, euangelion, means good news. His law is love and his good news is peace. 
It should be good news. We all need some good news and we all need some peace. And I think we can all agree that the world is in need of peace. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The baby born in that manger 2,000 years ago is the Prince of Peace. Since the year 3600 BC, the world has only known 292 years of peace. During this period, there have been 14,351 wars waged, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of the property destroyed would pay for a golden belt around the world 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. We live in a world of violence. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, in his manifesto called the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers will be called God's children. But hey, aren't we all God's children? Well, yes. But what Jesus is saying here is something different. He's saying that people who are witnessing these Christians bringing about peace, they're going to call them children of God. Peacemakers will be called children of God because they resemble their father. There's a family resemblance, and so they're called children of God. Peacemakers help alleviate violence, but not only violence, actually all conflict. That is what we're called to do as Christ followers. Now, what is Jesus' strategy for becoming these kinds of peacemakers that are blessed, that will be called children of God? The answer, of course, is love. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is probably the most scandalous thing that Jesus ever said. Because it revokes revulsion in us. Our enemies, they're the bad guys. We don't love them, we beat them. We overcome them, we conquer them, we kill them. For the first century Christians, this sense of unfairness would have been at the forefront of their minds. And in case you think Jesus is just teaching this in the midst of peace and harmony during those few hundred years of peace, no, don't forget the context. The Roman Empire ruled the world from England to India. Caesar, ruler of the world, inventor of the salad, had this Pax Romana, means Roman peace. And it was the way in which the empire gave peace through the sword, through violence, through death. We take your land, we take your money, we kill your leaders, and then you have peace because there's no one left to mess with us. Pax Romana. And Israel was one of the many nations oppressed by this empire. We have records of outrageous taxation, somewhere between 70 and 90%. And these taxes went to corrupt bureaucratic tax collectors. And the vast majority of people lived in 
vast poverty. There is a record of 30,000 Jews crucified outside of Jerusalem right before the time of Jesus as a show of force by the empire. This is what happens. You don't mess with Caesar. Here's what happens if you mess with the ruler of the world. So for obvious reasons, the Jews and the Romans were enemies. And for the vast majority of Jewish people, their thought is we should go to war with Rome. It's basic, right? We're God's chosen people. God is on our side and God is stronger than Caesar. We should go to war. And that's exactly what happens. A few decades after Jesus, we think only a few years, perhaps even months after Matthew writes his biography of Jesus in AD 66, Israel declares war on Rome and for four years, they suffered loss after loss. The war ends in a brutal defeat. Rome massacres tens of thousands of Jews. You can go to Masada, still to this day, which was the last stronghold for Israel. And then again in 132 AD, Israel goes back to war with Rome, this time following a guy, Bar Kopa, who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. It ends with a massive defeat, wiping Israel off the geopolitical map for literally 2,000 years up until 1948. The true Messiah shows us that you don't overcome hate with violence. You overcome it with love. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. And remember, this was written by someone who didn't believe, but what he knew about Jesus was that he taught us to love one another and that Christians should be people of peace. Let's at least do that. This teaching of Jesus messes with our minds and it messes with our worldviews, and it should. It was meant to. Everything we've known and grown up with about our lives, it's about good guys and bad guys. We like the good guys, but we hate the bad guys. And when I had a kid and my son began to grow up, as a dad, I found it very difficult to communicate to my son when he was younger, like four or five, that we saw in books and movies and shows that there are good guys and there are bad guys. He knew that. We would cheer for the good guys and we want them to win. And I told him that we want to be like the good guys and good guys aren't mean. And one time I remember him saying to me, yeah, but it's okay to be mean to bad guys. And I'm like, well, son, that's what the kingdom of this world says. But our loyalties are to a higher kingdom founded on Christ and we're called to love our enemies. Whew. Right over his head, right? Because when I was a kid, I grew up knowing who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. It was obvious. He-Man was a good guy, Skeletor was a bad guy. Optimus Prime was a good guy, Megatron was a bad guy. The Goonies were good, the Fratellis were bad, and then Luke and Vader. In Star Wars, things began to change a bit because in The Empire Strikes Back, we find out that Darth Vader is Luke's father. No longer is he just some soulless, evil Sith Lord, but he has a name. He's a human. He's a dad. There's goodness in him. And that was my way of helping my son begin to understand the way of Jesus. Because in Return of the Jedi, 
Luke refuses to use violence against his father, and in so doing, he overcomes evil with good. The Gospel according to George Lucas. Jesus loved, and with his dying last breath on the cross, forgives the very enemies who were crucifying him. We cannot overcome evil with evil. We must overcome it with good. The only hope is to convert the energy into some form of restoration. And this is what the kingdom of God is doing in the world, converting power over people through power under love. In fact, this is what defined the church's first existence for 300 years. For centuries, the primary way early Christians witnessed well was by dying well. You see, one of the ways the Roman Empire tried to stamp out the movement of Jesus was to kill Christians graphically and publicly in the hopes of dissuading people from joining this new upstart movement known as the Way. But it backfired. They would have these public executions, and people were given a front row seat to see how well these Christians died, and they would die like Jesus, praying for those who are killing them. And people would observe this and think there is something different about these people. I want in. And the more Rome would publicly execute Christians to discourage conversion, the more people would want to convert. Jesus is the perfect example of this. When Jesus died on the cross, praying for his killers, this moment gives us a, a real insight into one of the first conversions to Jesus. You have a Roman soldier, a centurion, who has just been involved in killing Jesus. He, he's watching Jesus die. And in watching Jesus die, the Roman replies, surely this man was the son of God. The resurrection hadn't happened yet. He's just watching how Jesus dies, and that's powerful enough to move him to belief. Now, some think that this sounds weak, and that's fine. It's no weaker than Jesus. It takes far more strength to love our enemies than to hate them. It's more complicated. It takes longer. It may cost us much more in our personal lives, but it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of shalom. It is the way of peace. It is not the way the world works. But it is the answer to our world's problems and the building blocks of God's future world. Martin Luther King Jr. said, to our most bitter opponents, we say we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, bomb our homes, threaten our children, send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities, and we shall still love you. And one day, we will not only win our freedom, but we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Now, for most of us, we are not on the front lines of a civil rights movement. We're just trying to raise our kids. We're, just, we're not living in a war zone, a, a war-torn place advocating for peace. We're just trying not to argue with our spouse all the time. Let me close with a short fable. 
about a mouse and a dove. The little mouse said to the wild dove, tell me the weight of a snowflake. The dove replied, nothing more than nothing. Well, in that case, I must tell you a marvelous story, said the mouse. I once sat on a branch of a fir tree close to its trunk. When it began to snow, not heavily, not in a raging blizzard, no, more like a dream, without a sound and without any violence. And since I didn't have anything better to do, I counted the snowflakes settling on the twigs and the needles of my branch, and their number was exactly 3,741,952. And when the 3,741,953rd snowflake dropped onto my branch, nothing more than nothing, as you say, broke the tree. Having said that, the mouse went away. The dove thought about it for a while and finally said to herself, perhaps there is only one person's voice lacking for peace to come in the world. You can make an impact. You can be the difference. Let us be the three millionth snowflake. For truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. How can you live that out in your home, at your work, with your family, with the world? One of the ways that we as a church are living this out is through generosity. Check out this short video. Yeah, you know, don't want anybody to accuse you of, you know, being light <laughs> on the something. work there. I'm doing yeah. something. Generosity means giving back to people when you have excess love and hope and care to give, and it's giving whenever you can and taking care of the people around you and being empathetic towards your neighbor. That's generosity. It means being selfless and thinking of others before yourself. What is generosity? Um, I think it's when you uh, do something or give something uh, out of love and without any selfish motives uh, to get anything back. Just yeah. Giving with your whole heart without expectations in return. Like giving when you don't have to. Generosity means giving what you have to someone less fortunate than you or someone who needs help from somebody. To just give something, no questions to ask, you just do it. I love it. So generosity to me, well, this Christmas season feels like making sure that every kid in our community is experiencing the joy that our kids are. We want every kid to feel that special. All right, generosity is giving with joy and giving even, even more than you can. It means providing for somebody that may, may not really think they need it and just to help out. Being able to give so much of what God has given to me back to other people. It goes hand in hand with the concept of love and, and care. Um, I think it's really important in the world because I don't think we have enough of it sometimes. And I think if you're put in a position where you can be generous, I think, why not? Generosity means unconditional giving. Giving without any reservations. So the idea of I, I'm, I'm giving without 
expecting anything in return. That's generosity. Awesome. Generosity means to me not being a selfish person, but giving what you really, what you can most give in life. Giving all of yourself and not just hiding back because you're scared or you're nervous. Just being able to go out there and live your life to the fullest while helping others along the way. Jim gets a harder question. The question for Jim is, how do you become the most handsome man in the world? Oh my God! That's easy. You marry the right woman. <laughs> One of the many reasons I love our church, Prodigal Church, is because of their generosity. Check it out. All those gifts and many, many more are going, going to children and family in need these holidays. I'm so thankful to be a part of this. God, I thank you for the amazing generosity of the people at Prodigal Church. And I pray, God, that as we give in this season and beyond, that these little snowflakes will make a great impact here and in our world for the cause of peace. May we become people of peace in a world of violence. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next Sunday is our Christmas Sunday, and we're going to have winter train rides, photos with Santa, face painting, our PC Kids performance. You don't want to miss it. Invite everybody you know. And then in two weeks, we are having our Christmas Eve service at 10 a.m. in the Bullard High School Theater. It's going to be incredible. We can't wait to celebrate the birth of our Savior together. God bless you. Peace in the Middle East.